0: hey jeff welcome to the podcast thank you so much for having me mike glad to be here really enjoyed your book i listened to it and then i read it haven't read a lot of books like this before. One thing I found really interesting is the whole idea of having a job is a new idea, right? It's only about 150 years old. The idea of going to a job, punching a clock, maybe switching jobs, that's that's all kind of new, correct?
1: I will tell you, Mike, when I first heard this, I was at a conference. It was actually said to me by the, uh, the great Carl Camden, former CEO of Kelly Services. And I remember thinking to myself, no, that can't be right. <laughs> that doesn't sound right. And I went and, you know, as any author would do, did my research and yeah, that is correct. This is a relatively new term. The term job is a new term. The term career is a even much more newer term. These things that we think of as normalized have become normalized very quickly, but this was not the case for how people proverbially put food on the table for the majority of human existence. And what were those
0: alternatives then? It was f-
1: well, I'll tell you this, you know, the alternatives as you look through human history are mostly not great. They, you know, slavery and, 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 and serfs and things of that nature. But the way we think about it for people that had a choice, acknowledging that a very, very, very large percentage of humanity did not have a choice, is they would think about it as a portfolio of work. So you would do farming, but you would also do some blacksmithing and you would create food. So you'd be a baker. All these things that are so specialized now, people would be not experts in, but they'd be proficient in, in terms of having a portfolio of activity that allowed them to provide for themselves and their families.
0: There were people that weren't doing work willingly, right? Or or weren't, there was indentured servants, there was obviously slavery, there was a lot of things where people sure. just couldn't move from role to role and just say, hey, you know what? I've had this, I'm, I'm done, or walk off it and get another. There wasn't, in a lot of history, there wasn't that option, correct?
1: No, of course not. You know, look, you're talking about for the vast majority of human history, people not having the economic capabilities nor obviously the political freedom to make any choices that they want. These are all, again, relatively new experiences in the human experience.
0: That whole idea that this is something new makes sense to me now, because I, you take a look at what's happening to jobs now, kind of go, okay, that was maybe just a temporary thing. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. whole, that whole concept of the idea of a job might've been a very post-industrial revolution up to the information age type of thing. And, and it's not something that's gonna be with us forever.
1: But, very true. Uh, and, you know, Carl brought it up to say, to make the juxtaposition versus people that had a portfolio of skills or a portfolio of work experiences or occupations. And the way we think about somebody that has a portfolio of different skills and different clients today is a freelancer. Yeah. And that wasn't, was freelancing more embedded into our collective DNA, our societal DNA then this idea of specializing and having a job and one place that you went to work. And I think that there's a very interesting discussion to be had on that.
0: Other thing that I found really interesting is that the, uh, the core of our industrial revolution, uh, some of the jobs that I guess people would say made America great or, or however you want to phrase it are going away, but they're not, not as many are going away because of offshoring. A lot of it's being uh, automated or optimized, correct? That is
1: 100% correct. There is a general narrative that trade policy or environmental policy or a host of other things have, have eroded the American job, especially that middle-class job that somebody without a college education could go and do in a manufacturing setting, in an extraction industry, mining, things of that nature. There, but the data just doesn't bear that out. There were 1 million people employed in the coal industry two generations ago. And there are now 80,000 people employed in the coal industry.
0: It's amazing. amazing. My family, Yeah, yeah, my family was employed by the coal industry, like a large part of my family in eastern Pennsylvania. Yeah, it's 80,000. Like that's a state. It's 80,000. Yeah, yeah. it was interesting in, in the political debates, coal comes up sometimes. And it, you know, it's a serious thing for the people who have those roles and have those of jobs. Course. It's not the huge employer.
1: Let me ask you this, Mike. How do you think that those 80,000 workers pull more coal from the ground than the 1 million workers
0: did or less? Well, I think your book said it was more. Way yeah. more. Yeah. We yeah. extract
1: way more coal from the ground. And you can have a debate or discussion as to whether or not we should yeah. and a host of other things. But we do. And the reality is... We employ hundreds of thousands of fewer people in the coal industry because machines rip coal from the ground. That's, that's the story of the coal industry. It's nothing to do with trade policy. It's got very little to do with environmental policy. It has to do with the fact that machines rip coal from the ground. And so if you want to have a serious conversation about employment in the United States, that conversation should almost entirely, not entirely, but almost entirely be focused on automation and what we do with automation, how we regulate it, how we retrain workers that whose jobs are being lost from it, that's the conversation to have, not a boogeyman conversation about Mexico or China, although we have substantive challenges with the Chinese on a number of fronts. But this is not the crux of that discussion.
0: Yeah, that is a huge eye-opener for me. Because I really thought that jobs were going away because of globalization, the competitive marketplace. Now someone in in middle America that had a certain skill because of the ability to move goods faster and more efficient and, you know, being able to make it anywhere. They were really at risk, you know, that they were threatened by the globalization. Mm -hmm. But it's really more automation. That was a big eye opener for me.
1: Well, look, let's not pretend globalization is not a factor. It's certainly a factor. But what is the biggest factor is certainly automation. And, you know, Mike, there's certainly a discussion to be had. Well, instead of going from 20 million manufacturing jobs, which we did, we peaked in 1980, and then as automation starts coming in to industrial manufacturing, the number of manufacturing uh, jobs in the United States drops to 12 million about 20 years later. Now look, do the Chinese play a role in that? Sure. If If companies weren't moving factories to China, would we have grown the 20 million manufacturing jobs to 30 million or 40 million? Maybe. That is a conversation that certainly can be had. But the idea that the 20 million jobs went down to 12, the 8 million jobs were lost, and it was lost because factories moved to Mexico or China, a variable in the equation, sure, but by far the biggest variable is that machines are performing those tasks. Because again, we produce about twice as much as we did from an industrial output standpoint in 1980. So we have doubled what we output as a nation today, but we do it with 40% fewer
0: workers. It's interesting when people do make frank comments about jobs. And maybe you've seen this even as you talk about this book. I'll pick on some people. Hillary Clinton, I think when she was running for president, did say to the coal miners that your jobs are going away. And if you think they're coming back, they're not. And she was like, put, she was skewered for saying that, you know, because it sounded almost un American. And Mark said, if you think your jobs are coming back to the United States when production comes back, you're mistaken. If production comes back to the United States, robots are going to be doing this work and AI is gonna be doing this mm-hmm. work. It it will be made here, but it won't be there won't be a lot of jobs.
1: There is a minuscule possibility that we get back to 20 million manufacturing jobs in the United States. Now, might we keep the 12 that we have? Should that be a goal? Absolutely. Should it be a goal that we increase it a little bit as much as we possibly can? Of course it should. But to pretend that American ingenuity, American productivity, American energy, and all the amazing things that America has going in its favor, that those things are suddenly going to tilt and mean that we're gonna do a huge amount of manu- more manufacturing in the United States. There's just not a reasonable scenario in which that's the case. Now that being said, does it mean that we then say, oh, well, anyone that worked in that sector, tough? Of course not. We are capable, and I would say responsible as a society, to help those workers to retrain for the jobs that are not only here,
0: but are growing. Let's talk a little bit about robots, because they're going to come in a lot of different forms. Automation is going to be coming in waves of technology enhancements that could just eat away more jobs that like truck driving and other jobs that you just never suspected would be vulnerable to automation replacement. Yes, yes, and yes.
1: But let's let's double click on it, though. and And here's Here's Mike, where I, I, get, I get frustrated yeah. in the conversations yeah. that, that happen in the public square. Let's talk about our friends, the truck drivers. So there are 3.3 million professional drivers in the United States, if memory serves. If autonomous vehicles become road ready, if autonomous vehicles get widely adopted, all of those jobs are at risk. But the idea that that is going to happen in the next few years is laughable. It's just laughable. And there are a few reasons behind it. The first is the notion of getting road ready. Autonomous vehicles have been 90% road ready for like 10 years (laughs) because that last little bit is really, really, really difficult. But let's say for some miracle in another five years, they get there. I would bet against that. But let's say that they do. Then there come the legal and regulatory frameworks for putting these vehicles on the road full time in in mass. And I would say that takes you at least another 10 years, let alone the infrastructure to make sure there's the recharging and blah, 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 all the sensors on the roads that are needed and whatever. So then there's that. Then let's say again, miraculously, all of that happens. It's amazing. The vehicles are road ready. All the infrastructure's in place. All the policies are in place. If... Anybody has this notion that the second all that occurs, all the jobs go away overnight. That is, again, ridiculous. It will take another 15 years for the capital investment necessary for trucking fleets to replace their fleets, for all the other people, the taxi car fleets to all replace their fleets. It takes a huge amount of time and capital investment. And so will the jobs start to decline at that point? Yes. Will they all go that next day? Of course not. It just, it's never happened in history. And the idea that people say, oh, autonomous vehicles, 3.3 million workers, what are you going to do? Okay, well, let's actually look at the scenario. And what we're going to do is be thoughtful about it. We're going to see how long it's actually going to take. We're going to keep as many of those jobs for as long as we can. And we're going to provide support to those workers slowly and over time as the jobs are displaced and help them move into jobs that are growing. And that's what we're going to do as a society, not freak out about it.
0: Yeah, I, I took a course at MIT and one of the one of the experts in it, she was lecturing and she her feeling was that so like you and I would drive in an autonomous flying vehicle that we don't control uh, before mm-hmm. before cars and trucks become more widespread. And it's because of the 10 percent. Her feeling was you're not going to be able to control that vehicle if you fly. <laughs> it's going to it's going to be programmed to go a certain way. And it's going to have rules that all those all those flying vehicles will obey. And that the problem we have right now is not everyone follows rules on the road. Let me ask you this
1: very, very important question, Mike. At any point, did she say roads? Where we're going, we don't need roads. (laughs) (laughs)
0: <laughs> no, no. <laughs> she didn't say that. But it was it was wow. it was a, a thought provoking thing because I was just like, well, you know, she, it made sense. She said it's all going to be programmed like these things won't hit each other because it'll be it'll be better than, you know, flight technology now and it'll be all programmed and and well, you and I won't be speeding around like George Jetson in the sky because we're not going to have control of that device or, you know, because it's going to be programmed to go. Yeah, the idea is it, it's just like an autonomous taxi that comes mm-hmm. to get you only it's going to fly in the sky. And uh, and I was like, oh, that's yeah. super,
1: super interesting point. And I, you know, I never heard it before, but I agree, right? The r- rules of the road, quote unquote, when you're flying through the sky, I think are much easier. You don't have a kid running around into the middle of the street out of nowhere, which right. the car didn't anticipate, right? Like there, it is much easier to do up there. That is a very, very interesting point.
0: Yeah, that's what she said. She said it gets, you know, one, if you don't let people control them that's that's on that's more than you're already at the 90% right there and then if you have and then you put the programming in you all those things about driving around uh, cities and all the millions of things that can happen while you're driving a car just don't happen if if, if you're not on the road, so it was. It was an interesting uh, idea, but but if if that's the case, then it kind of get it does build to your argument. Like this isn't happening anytime soon because you I I haven't seen too many flying cars around, so it's like okay, that'll be more mainstream before autonomous driving vehicles. We've got some time to go now, so we got also, some time to go. Yeah, we got hey, some time to go. I want to get your opinion on on maybe other jobs. I was at a company that was uh, selling a product. And, and the product was this. So uh, so many companies have, in, they invoice a, a company. And then when the payment comes, the payment is shorted for some reason. The deduction comes on the payment. And there are some companies out there that have literally thousands of people trying to figure out, is this a legitimate deduction because maybe something was damaged or, um, or someone's just trying to skate by and not have it noticed. So they have these huge deduction floors. And this company was going to be automating this whole process. It comes in, it reads the invoice, it reads the deduction, and it does some investigation uh, using AI, whether this is a valid deduction or not. And it can, Jeff, it's like most deductions are valid, like 98% of them. And then, the, but the 2% end up costing companies a lot of money, but you still have to have the thousands of people to find that 2%, right? It's robotic processing automation, which a lot of companies seem to be looking at. And that's kind of a job that you wouldn't think would be immediately something that could be eliminated, but it's something that I think in the next couple of years could be, to your point, like almost what's happening with Coleman, you still have the 2% of the employees there working on, or maybe 5% working on the 2%, but you don't need the the thousands of people. I I love your point that because there's 3.4 million people being employed, we'll get a long warning on that. But I think there's other jobs where we just won't. As many as 3.4, but they're in these clerical roles and they're not really bunched in a classification but they could be automated out of a job in, in something that's not really uh, high, as high profile as uh, driving a truck. I think
1: that you are right. I would certainly concede that robotic process automation software, the RPA software industry, has the ability in a much quicker fashion to take out a very large number of jobs, certainly much quicker than the trucks, but I don't think it's gonna be in a year type thing. It will yeah. still take a couple years, and robotic process automation software companies are growing by leaps and bounds and companies are engaging them by leaps and bounds and they are displacing jobs as we speak. But again, the idea that just because a new technology exists, it means that all the jobs go, maybe, historically that's just not what we've seen. And this is, this is why it's so important to study data patterns, to study history and to study how companies actually engage workers. Because yes, if I am ABC Corp and I can automate that process, of course, I'm going to try to automate it. Of course, I'm going to bring in software. Of course, I'm going to go through these things. But then I'm going to try to repurpose my workers. I'm going to try to do a host of things. I don't just snap my fingers and all of a sudden an entire department goes. Yeah. Is it possible in the future? Of course it is. Anything's possible. It's just not a pattern we've seen in the past. But would I put those jobs at a much higher risk in the near term than truck drivers? Absolutely.
0: Yeah. When I dropped off my son for orientation in college, the president of the school got up and said, you know, two thirds of the students in that audience in 20 years will be working in jobs that don't even have a name yet. So Mm -hmm. they're, 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 they're roles that don't even have a... So what we're told is, hey, you know, if you go to school work hard, you'll get a job, but it does seem like it's a little bit more of a shooting gallery, like you, or whack-a-mole, you've got to be very careful about the career you pick with the threat of automation and some of these things, globalization, and then I think at a certain point, like, I don't think we're talking to people about this, but you do have to be prepared at some point to pivot in your career, like the whole idea that you might be, um, like, there's some roles, like, I, I take a look at what AI is doing in uh, the ability to read cancer cells and being a, a pathologist, and you know that's a role no one ever thought. You know that's an advanced degree doctor. You know, and that's a role that could go away pretty quickly based on some of the AI findings around reading cancer photos and and diagnosis and and uh, and biopsies. Am I wrong? Should we be telling people, younger people particularly, but even older people, that you know th- there's a there's a, a nimbleness that has to have, be in place here if, if you're going to look for um, lifetime employment in- well,
1: two things come to mind well now a third thing goes into the way you enter that ends um, lifetime employment I think everybody should ghost that
0: from right. from there go, that's, right? ex- yeah, that, that's gone that's uh, gone right
1: that's gone and then certainly you know we touch in the book the data around did it ever really exist but let, let, let's leave that aside for a second there are two things that come to mind one is this general phrase that I've been saying, which is to go hard when you think about your career options and go hard, meaning either go hard tech because those jobs are all basically slated to grow over the next 20 years. Jobs obviously in robotics and in data and in AI and in computer software and blockchain and cybersecurity growth, 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 growth. Uh, But the other jobs that are slated to grow are hard human. The hard human jobs involved in creativity and design and customer interaction, those jobs will all grow. So I'd avoid that squishy middle where there's a lot of repetitive high volume processes that tend to get automated away. And we look through uh, job functions and how they've changed over history. But the more important thing was the other point that you made, which is, A phrase that a lot of people are starting to say, oh, God, that phrase is getting overused, and I'm pounding the table saying, no, 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 it is not being used enough, and that phrase is lifelong learner, that you have to, have to, have to be a lifelong learner. The amount of time that it takes a skill to abate, to become non-monetizable, used to be 30 years. Could pick up your skill from 18 to 24 in whatever kind of educational format, school, college, vocational schools, apprenticeships, and then you would monetize that skill for thirty years. Now, the average skill abates between four and six years. Oh, really? And yeah. so everybody needs to constantly be reinventing themselves. Everybody, everybody, everybody. And as you think about your children, and then they're going off and they're starting their careers. All right, look. If they want to go hard tech, great. If they want to go hard human, great. But even no matter where they go, they are always going to have to be learning. And within that is always the statement of, oh, the education system needs to change. I think people have been saying the education system needs to change for about 100 years, and it really hasn't. So I'm not optimistic about that. But uh, there are certainly changes that people can make as they look to make sure that they have marketable skills that they can monetize.
0: If if lifelong learning is is something everyone's gonna have to adopt, there, and there is some lifetime learning out there, but it does seem that there's an opportunity out there that the, maybe the Khan Academy is for grownups, uh, that, mm-hmm. that there's, there's, there does seem to be a market out there for some kind of support system around that.
1: I am in violent agreement. I think the big challenge that we face as a society is not just manifest itself in lifelong learning and as people have to continually upgrade their skills by doing a Khan Academy, or Skillshare's or various other different uh, platforms that are out there. But the retraining that we need to do, because, look, truck drivers may be safe over the next, call it 15 to 20 years, but there's 10 to 15% of jobs that will go, that will be automated away, mostly through robotic process automation, to your point earlier. And in the United States, that's 25 million people that we need to think about and we need as a society to support. And the big challenge for society is how do we retrain those workers? Because going back to the local community college to get uh, another degree, isn't something they get too excited about. But are there online programs? Are there VR programs? Can they put on a virtual reality headset and after a month be ready and trained to jump onto a manufacturing line uh, or various other jobs that are
0: still uh, hiring. You know one of the things when I was reading your book, in the life of someone's career, there does seem to be some rituals out. If you get a certification, let's say agree and you pass the bar big celebration. If you get a promotion, there's usually a celebration tied to that. If, you, if you're in the military, there's actually a ceremony. In a business, you, you frame your first dollar. Obviously, uh, any kind of anniversaries, they celebrate in jobs and, uh, and retirements. But the whole idea of retraining is something that, that sounds like a retraining, yeah. right? And it, there's no ritual around it. These things, if they were that uh, visible, like I think you truck driving is a visible thing, I think farming was less visible in the United States, right it, it, even though uh, the automation in farming was pretty apparent, there were a lot of people resistant to that and, mm-hmm. and we went through some generations of pain right with the family farm uh, that wasn't pleasant for a lot of people uh, i don 't think like we don't have to go too back far back in both our probably family history and we get we run into a, a farmer in our, in our in our in our roots right I, I only have to go back. So I got, so there's coal mining and then the people before them were farmers, <laughs> you know, so it's, it, it's not that far back, but there is no, it doesn't seem like we have any kind of ritual, any kind of a process in place to help that group of people. And I'm not sure if we are even communicating it too well to people that, you know, um, that you're going to have to be much more nimble and be a lifelong learner. I, you know, your book, it was very clear on, but you don't, you don't. You don't hear politicians say that. Like, guess what? And and when politicians say their jobs going away, and it's not coming back. That's that's that doesn't go well with a lot of people. Uh, you, you even not. no, you even saw it with Joe Biden, where he's like, you know what? Uh, we're not gonna we're not gonna be putting money into oil as a as a you know we're we're looking at alternative fuels. And Trump's immediate response was, "You just lost the state of Texas." And and I was re- reading the next day. It's like, well, actually, alternative fuels are a larger employer in Texas than oil. You know, so even our like even the perceptions of oil and and coal are really off with a lot of people out there. And I guess my question is, do you see any movement in this area around around ritual around? Who owns it? Because I think there's a lot of people that feel that like government would own this, but I don't see a lot of that happening. And I'm just wondering where you, where you see the solution of, and maybe it's not, maybe people are gonna have to flounder in this process and there is no support, but what, what's your sense?
1: So Mike, this is a challenge. I will tell you, I've not thought about it the way you framed it as the ritual in regards to the promotion or the graduation is, is a very specific ritual. But I have thought a lot about who owns it. We have a very clear trend in the world of work of increased personal responsibility of the safety net shifting from the company, from the government to the individual and the individual having to provide their own safety net, their own training, their own development, their own healthcare, their own retirement. And so within that, might we see the individual own it? Might we see the education system continue to evolve where... The curriculum at the high school level, the curriculum at a vocational school, at a two-year college, uh, the push to a four-year college, where a lot of those things might shift, maybe. Might we see companies own this, where they increase their own training programs because the education system is not providing it and people aren't taking it on to themselves and companies need to get work done. So if they need to own it, they're going to own it. Or, to your point, should the government own it? Now, I don't know that the government should be owning it, as in providing the training directly. But should governments mandate that companies have to, if they're letting go workers, provide the appropriate retraining for so they can get jobs in other industries? Should governments mandate that educational institutions have to provide X, Y, and Z skills before a person can be given a degree? So you the, you took all their you took all this person's money. Are you letting them leave your institution with something they can monetize? Should governments incentivize individuals with tax policy around their own retraining? I think there are a lot of very interesting questions to be asked here, a lot of debates and discussion to be had. And I would never profess to know the answer to it, but I know it is a big challenge that collectively as a society, we have to address. And if we don't, we leave it unchecked at our peril.
0: Yeah, I see the same thing you see. Uh, I like uh, about 15 years ago, I worked for a a company that was based out in Silicon Valley, and when I went out there just for trainings and for meetings, it was interesting because at lunch, uh, everyone was talking about young and old. They were all talking about their side gig, like everyone had something being developed in a garage. You know, and I was just, I I just came away from that going, "Wow, this is really interesting." And And I told them, I said, "You know, there aren't as many people." my age, at least on the East Coast, are spending their lunch hour working on a side gig or talking about their side gig or something. like It was, it was a very entrepreneurial, uh, very out in the open, like I'm working on a side gig. <laughs> they weren't whispering it. Yeah. And now I see it more on the East Coast and with different age groups where you know, almost everyone I know is doing something different um, in anticipation or in preparation of some kind of corporate reality. It's it's two things. I think it's one is people want uh, maybe more independence and two, they don't feel that there's a lot of corporate loyalty. So they're like uh, self-preservation is, is driving sure. a lot of that. But I don't see other than that. I don't see a lot of other. So it's a self-preservation on the individual. And I think that's probably, I don't see other infrastructure or other things happening. Do you?
1: I don't just yet. Okay. I don't. I think it's going to take some time, but... These are things that, again, are complicated and there are no easy answers to. And so, should we be thoughtful about these things? Absolutely. But are they things that we can be better at as a society? I think so.
0: I'm thinking that maybe colleges may, their, their, their ROI, as you hinted on, is, is coming into question more and more. And I think in COVID, when people started doing, you know, like, you know, deferring or, or doing different things, uh, even more so, um, maybe they. I, I think they may be stepping into this space. For example, a pathologist. If they're, if that career uh, as a pathologist goes away because of advanced technology that just eliminates an advanced degree, highly educated person. Now they could pivot into a different role within the medical world, but that probably would need going back to school, and that's not community college. That's probably a different type, of higher ed college experience. And I could see them maybe stepping into this.
1: It could be, but this is another area where I'm not sure that the hype lives up to it. You know, we heard for years, oh, well, we don't need radiologists because radiologists in India can do it. And that turned out to be a big nothing. (laughs) Radiologists in India couldn't do it. And and so the idea that that doctors are going to trust (laughs) software to analyze something, that a patient is going to trust it. I'm not sure that we get there in the near term. Do I think over the long term we get there? Absolutely. I think the only real question is in the medium term. And what does it look like in 15 years time? Because it's not just, it's not the accounting process or it's not something that has a definitive outcome, whether a person did it or a computer did it, it got done and we know that it got done correctly. The judgment call on looking at, an x-ray, looking at a echocardiogram and making the determination, okay, I think we have a problem here. That is a very long way off for any computer system.
0: You're saying go hard tech, go hard human and lifelong learning. Those are, you know, those aren't easy things, but that's your guide. You can't really know what's going to happen here. Pathologists could be eliminated sooner than truck driver. You know, we know some, some of these jobs are going to be eliminated through, and, and you're right, some of the, the flashy articles, those don't ever seem to happen. We've been talking about automated vehicles for a long time. Apple just came out, mm-hmm. but yesterday and said they're getting back into it, which was very surprising. They said they're going to have a car on the road in 2024, which, you know, that's not too far away. I, I was shocked when I heard that. Any other guidance you have, hard human, hard tech and, and lifelong learning? Do you have anything? Is there any kind of safe harbor out there in this capitalist world?
1: safe <laughs> harbor no i, I certainly sure. don't know one uh but i will say this that you should and you meaning your listeners and and yeah. everybody should be wary anytime you see a prediction that says oh my gosh this thing's going to change radically okay i'm not saying that i'm right mike i i certainly would never say that i would say that if you study history and this was obviously the whole point of the book if you study history if you study the data if you study how companies actually engage workers, you have a higher probability of being correct than if you don't do those things. Right. And so I would just caution people to be wary and I, wouldn't, I would hate for someone to say, oh, well, I don't wanna become a truck driver because truck drivers' jobs are all gonna go away. Maybe they will, maybe they won't. Here's the reality of truck driving in the United States today. There is a huge skills gap we are desperately trying to find more truck drivers in the United States and we don't have them.
0: Yeah.
1: And so that's the reality of that profession in the United States today. Might in the next 10 years, that be very different. Sure. But to anyone that just reads some sort of article by somebody that hasn't studied history, that hasn't looked at the actual data, that hasn't spoken to trucking companies and really understand capital expenditures and labor force resource planning and all these other things for some person to just write an article and then somebody to take that as gospel, that scares the heck out of me. And it it frustrates and angers me, actually, quite frankly. People shouldn't be making predictions because unless they're grounded in evidence, because workers, families, communities, companies, societies have to plan for the future. And if they're planning based on incredibly erroneous predictions, that's a problem. But that being said, don't take my word for it either. Just because, well, you know, I have my thesis, but I will present the data behind my thesis. And I wouldn't say come to your own conclusions in as much as these are really, really difficult topics that take a lot of research and a lot of compiling of data. But be wary of any predictions you do read.
0: I totally agree with that. I, I read this book one time where they talked about, you know, predicting the future. And uh, if you go back in time, no one predicted commercial television as big as influence that was on the United States in the back half of the 20th century. Commercial television was never really predicted by any known future. You kind of look at that and go, okay, that's, that's a big miss. <laughs> So, so the, and, and, you know, we're supposed to all be wearing silver suits by now, right? And uh, on, on moving walkways. So it's, it's a little bit different than what they've all predicted. Like, I don't, I don't think we want to live in a world where, uh, you know, the government says they, you know, they give you a look over and say, okay, you're going to be a factory worker. You're going to be a high diver. You know, there are countries out there that do this, right? <laughs> At a very young age, decide what people are going to be doing. We don't do that. We let everyone kind of do what they want to do because of this, you know, four to five year type duration, do you see any kind of group providing guidance out there on, uh, do you see someone stepping up and saying, Hey, here's the list, <laughs> you know, here's the yep. list, you know, you, you really made an effort in the book and you obviously got a lot of other people. I love the uh, section at the end where you got a lot of other people's opinions on this, because I think there were, you could kind of take something out of those, but do you see someone creating a list that says, you know, For the next 10 years, this is... I think
1: the best thing, if your listeners are going to read one thing on the future... Well, sorry, they're going to read one thing, they should read my book. Right. If they're going to read two things, Mike, they're going to read two things. Uh, The other thing would be the World Economic Forum. The World Economic Forum puts out regular work on this from their uh, Center for the Fourth Industrial Revolution and a host of other places within the forum. I think they're doing phenomenal, phenomenal work on the future of work and specifically which jobs are growing, which jobs are dying, which jobs uh, might well stay the same. And their research is not just based off of trend analysis and things like that. They're talking to CEOs and CFOs of companies all over the world and they're using all of that data to put together where are people really hiring and so I think their work is is second to none
0: in this space. The World Economic Forum, what, the best place to do that was on the is on their website. If I look that up and post yep. it in the show notes, I found your book fascinating. It, you know, there's there's these perceptions around jobs, and, and you you kind of cut through that and some of the history of it. If nothing else, I think it's important for people to understand. I guess they should always be thinking about this. There are some roles that are probably very secure for the next maybe for the rest of a lot of people's careers, mm-hmm. but maybe take a lot more ownership of, of what's gonna to happen to them because it's, uh, it's important, right? And it's ever changing.
1: I think that that might be the most important thing, which is again, something that is a very powerful trend within the world of work, which is increased personal responsibility. And so no matter what the trends are, no matter which jobs are growing, no matter what happens to the education system, people can, and should, and need to own this themselves.
0: One of the themes of my podcast is it's called the hero's journey economy, but it's all about uh, people going on personal journeys. And it's, uh, as Jocko Willick would say, it's taking extreme ownership of your life, turning into something that oftentimes could be something that's uncomfortable or a little scary. What I'm seeing, Jeff, is I'm seeing across a lot of different areas, people being more willing to do that. Uh, for a lot of different reasons. This falls right in line with that. In all these things, if you're moving from, is that uncomfortableness of maybe taking the night class, thinking about this job going away three years from now, I'm gonna be totally someplace else with, with new people I don't know yet. That I think intimidates a lot of people, but at the same time, I think you're seeing it also where people are saying, hey, I own this. No one's really watching out for me except for me you know, yeah. I, I, and I think there's a lot of people think the government's watching out for them but I, I don't think they are you know and, and I think they're limited in that and I think they promise that when they when they're running for office but I don't think it's something they probably should own except under maybe under these types of circumstances where they need where people need help but uh, for career guidance I think it's something people really have to take uh, extreme personal ownership of
1: I am in violent agreement with that as well
0: yeah really appreciate you being uh, part of the podcast. I, like I said, uh, The End of Jobs a great book and I strongly recommend it because I, I think for any worker, it should be something they read and kids are in college right now too. Um, I'm going to recommend they read this book <laughs> because I think it's, a, it's an eye-opener as far as what they should be thinking about.
1: I certainly appreciate it and then, you know, anytime they want to talk about it, have them reach out.
0: Okay. Jeff, thanks a lot. I really appreciate it. Good luck with the book. I'm sure it stops. This is probably not the one with the largest audience. So I appreciate you making the time and, and uh, good luck on, on, uh, on how it goes.
1: It was a super fun conversation, Mike. Thank you so much for having me.